0: <their> 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 Namo tasa bhagavatu arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavatu arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavatu arahato sama Sambuddhasa Buddhangdamang Sangam Namasami. I was asked a very all-encompassing question Can you share with us how your practice of mindfulness has helped you to deal with difficult situations that we would find relevant Well That's my whole life. I will try to share some of that during this time together, based on what I found helpful. You've asked me how to pronounce my name, and what does it translate as in English? Aya means Venerable Lady. And Medanandi is pronounced made a nun with a D at the end. Literally, it means the bliss of wisdom. I was made a nun. And then the bliss of wisdom, I use it as love of wisdom. Until I develop wisdom, I aspire for it. I may have only glimpses of it, but that brings me joy and I get encouraged to keep going. Our aspiration is to realize ultimate wisdom, ultimate reality, and to perfect our wisdom. It's a gradual process. And we dedicate ourselves to continue to develop it and gain the fruits of that, little by little. It's a wonderful thing to have a name that refers you to and points you in the direction of fulfilling what you want to realize in your life. What you love most... For me, it's the culmination of this path. It's like crowning the mind with the beautiful qualities endowed by the practice of dhamma. And I think that's why one takes on the robe, or undertakes a sadhana. Usually, you're given a new name, which helps to signify. The profound commitment that we make to that interior work. And it helps to keep reminding us of our orientation in life. What is our purpose? Why did we come here to practice in this way? Just like the robe, every time I wake up and I look at the robe that I'm wearing, I'm reminded of what I'm doing. I think of the Buddha, his life, and his teachings, and my earnest wish is reignited. To understand and realize more and more profoundly the truths of this practice. There are no options for me. This is so valuable. You might think it becomes a prison, but it's not. It may be restricting. Yes, in a good way because this strictness is a discipline. It closes many doors that would otherwise lead us into distraction instead of to the freedom of the heart. I learned that one day when someone took me to a shop and asked me if I would like some soap and go pick up some soap. So I found the row where they keep soaps, And there were so many soaps to choose from. That was the first time I experienced option paralysis. I just could not choose a soap. Such a simple thing. Years ago, if you walked into a shop to buy soap, there would be maybe two brands. Ivory and... I think it was luxe. But now the variety is unimaginable. They used to always come in bars wrapped in a paper. And now the soaps also come in bottles and jars of different shapes and designs. This is how the world is now. It presents us with... So many choices in every direction. We're in a jungle of objects. Wherever we turn, we have to make fast decisions about them. I find myself getting exhausted just trying to make a choice about these minor things of life. We're also influenced and bombarded with information in most aspects of daily life, from how we travel and what work we do and what we eat and what we wear, not to mention the immense industry around personal care products. Nowadays, living in the material world How do you cope with all this? How do you just sort out the basics without being overwhelmed? But when you wear the robe and you can't use money, you can't choose what food you eat, let alone prepare it, So you're really a beggar in every moment, in every situation, in every sense of the word, whatever experience is given to you, that is your opportunity to be mindful, to practice accepting the moment and making peace with it, whatever it may be. Sometimes that can feel very, very hard. But we, we do have a chance to use this choice-making as a way of bringing ourselves back to the pillars of our practice. Being in the present moment, paying attention, looking at the object, Knowing it, understanding it, opening to the situation skillfully, upholding virtue. We focus ourselves well and we make wise choices. And then we go on to the next moment. We put the pieces of our life together, no matter how fragmented we might feel. If we get caught just choosing the right color, the right texture, the right equipment, the best kitchenware, all those kind of things, the best relationships. Maybe it's because we're tired of what we have, or because we think it's not good enough. That's like operating with a critical mind, and we're convincing ourselves that we, what we do have is not good enough. This can lead to getting sidetracked because we're not putting enough value on what's worthy of value. So, having too much can be undermining. It can be confusing. It can be misleading. It can be exhausting. It can be imprisoning because we just don't know how to move forward. Our our doubting mind, our frustration, our sense of inadequacy, or our lack of self-esteem, or lack of confidence, can immobilize us, can paralyze us. I find that moving with the Dhamma in this one-pointed way, is very freeing because there is really only one way to go and it's towards truth. But it's an incredible commitment and it means giving up a lot. Actually, you get to the point where you don't feel like you're giving up It's just natural because you know what is the most important thing. You know that what I'm receiving is the greatest blessing. Even if sometimes it doesn't feel like a blessing, we know that it's a blessing. And that's very hard to do. But we have to do it. Duty, responsibility is like that. Commitment is like that. We've made a commitment to do something, and it's something wholesome, and we fulfill it. Just like being a parent. Till your last breath, you'll always be a parent. You'll always be concerned about your kid. Being children, it's different. If we're really a good son or a daughter, then that too has to be done in a reverse way. Always caring for our parents until our last breath. They may predecease us, but as long as they're alive, to really show our gratitude. We may think that they didn't do what we wanted them to do, or that they weren't the best parents. But maybe they did their best. So, to accept that. And if you are a parent, you know that you're doing your best for your children. And how would you like your children to be with you? Gratitude. We want to bring them to gratitude. You can't just manufacture gratitude. Gratitude cannot be just made up. So then, the practice of mindfulness can help. It can help us dig very deep within ourselves and discover the places where we're angry, we're resentful. What are we holding? What kind of grudge? What kind of bitterness? What's the root of that? Where does it come from? We can slowly dust it off, polish it, disentangle it, defragment it, because these are the obstacles of gratitude, the obstacles to gratitude. Have you ever defragmented a computer? There's a certain program called Defrag. Do you know what that is? It kind of brushes your computer's hair. It disentangles all the bits that have made loops in order to present information to you. Twisted themselves around each other digitally. And after they do this for months and months and months, Your computer starts to hold a lot of unnecessary information. It slows down. And this is true with us. This is a computer here. We have processed so much information, so much that we're holding, and some of it is quite sticky. It's like sludge. We pack it, compact it, make it very dense, and we carry it around with us. I've referred to it before as heavy baggage like a backpack. You don't even know you're wearing it. And we keep carrying it around. And every situation that we meet, we meet it with that backpack. We've got that backpack on, and we meet it with that weight on our hearts. This doesn't help us to make good decisions, even to practice awareness of what we're doing, because we're already quite weighed down. And our choices are based on or made from a mind and a heart that are weighed down. We might make choices that weigh us down even more, unwittingly, unintentionally. We want happiness, but how to put down this burden? So this practice can help us to shed light It's almost like melting ice. We know about glacial melt. The melting of the glaciers is not a good thing for our planet. But the melting of the ice in the heart, it can be a very good thing, a positive thing. It can warm us up literally, warm us up. I call this noble warming. We need this. If we can warm ourselves with goodness, with virtue, we make ourselves whole. It's a healing, a healing process. But it might be very difficult to do because there's a lot of fear. Why are we carrying this backpack? It's fear. We're too afraid to go to those places and defragment or just comb out the knots and disentangle the way we've knotted ourselves. All those knots are basically coping mechanisms for what's been difficult from the age when we could first react to the world and respond. We've been coping. What about the two-year-old girl that got raped by her father? This happens. I know. I know people that have been there, hospitalized with mental illness as a result for years later. Very difficult to de-traumatize that little person who is now grown up? What about people who were in concentration camps or attacked as young adults or cheated, betrayed, or had abusive parents, abusive family situations, or were exposed to any kind of trauma? Anything you could think of from just biological illness, deformity, or some kind of chemicals missing in the blood, some terrible depression. Just trying to heal from that, trying to get back from that, trying to balance, trying to become centered when we've been thrown so far away from center. This is a process of putting the pieces back together again. You know how a doctor in a surgery will sew you back together. After an operation, initially, the scars look horrendous. But after a few years... The skin comes back. It doesn't look great, but it's pretty tough. So we can sew ourselves back together. But we have to realize that this is possible. We have to have faith in the process. We have to surrender to that process. Give ourselves to it fully and not, well, yeah but you don't do anything. We know we should be doing it, but we don't actually give ourselves to it. We have to make an effort, and we have to do it continuously. Not for five minutes a week, not for half an hour a week, not for a week once a year. But every day, As much as we can. If we really want to become whole and centered and to live whole and healed, healing ourselves, we need good friends to help us, spiritual friends. And we need to make decisions in our lives that lead us in that direction. So it doesn't mean that you become a nun or a monk, but that you become a disciple of truth. And you point yourself, you make decisions that keep pointing you in that direction. And that begins, that begins with one moment of mindfulness. Why? Because if you're not mindful and not aware then you're not living consciously. And your mind is still in those dark places or weighed down with that weight or unable to realize and be sensitive to how you're reinforcing old habits, old addictions, old patterns. Like trying to crochet a straight line. Have you ever knitted or crocheted Actually, the monks in our tradition learn how to crochet their bowl covers and other assorted accessories like socks, wrist warmers, other woolly things. It's a wonderful practice. I have to tell you this story. You've all heard of Ram Das. So decades ago, Ram Das was giving a talk in Oklahoma. The people in the audience were mostly young collegiate types, flower child, long hair and bell bottoms, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, maybe a little stoned. But in the middle of the front row, there sat an elderly lady, very traditionally dressed with a hat on. And she looked totally out of place in that situation. And she listened attentively and kept nodding her head throughout the whole talk. And then at the end, a few people came up to chat with him. And this lady came up carrying her little purse in her arms. And she says to him, Thank you so much. That was a wonderful talk. And he said to her, What kind of practice do you do? And she said, crochet. I do a lot of crochet. I find it's a really great practice. It's very repetitive, and if you keep noticing every stitch, it has to be just like the stitch before it, unless you're doing a complicated pattern. I mainly do single or double crochet stitch which is easy to focus on and you get into a rhythm so your hands know what to do. And I can make every stitch a practice of metta. Then the mind fills up with loving kindness and I chant with every stitch. Like when I made my bowl cover I was stitching with mindfulness of every stitch not to make a mistake otherwise I'd go back and redo from the spot that I made the mistake and with every stitch I chant I chant the metta chant to spread loving kindness to myself and everyone I could think of it's a very powerful practice it really is It has a similar effect to sitting and watching your breath. You can try and crochet, but you have to pay attention. And if while you're stitching you wish you could finish quickly, or your mind is elsewhere thinking, then of course, that's not meditation. I noticed that when yarn is wound around a bobbin or stitched into a a garment and you unravel it, the yarn comes out deformed from being twisted in the crochet or knitting pattern. And this also happens with plastic coated electric cables that get wound up when you store them, you know, like You may have seen the wires from your computer or other appliance. After you store it for a long time, they get deformed into the circular or oblong shape. And even if you unravel it, they still have that shape. They will not lie straight. You can't easily unwind the wire. That's true with the mind. Our minds are so trained to lie in a certain way, to coil in a certain way, to turn in a certain way, that if we try to unwind them, or unfurl them, uncurl them, or straighten them into another shape, they resist. They go right back. This is addiction a habit. Not all habit is unskillful. There's only one addiction that I know that is skillful, and that is this practice. But even that can be done in unskillful ways, like when your relatives ask you, what have you been doing all day? And you start to become like an evangelist about meditation. That's not so good. That's why we have to keep unraveling our habits and the way we train our minds. That's why it's so important to practice mindfulness in every area of our lives. Do you see? repeatedly, as boring as it gets, as discouraging as it feels, as tired as we are with it, we just have to keep picking ourselves up and going for it with as much care and interest as we can muster. This will enable us to reuse, just like if you take that skein of wool and you straighten it around a bobbin. Then you can make something new out of it. And once it's crocheted, again, it looks fabulous. It doesn't look like it was ever anything else. That's true with the human heart. It's so resilient. Once we empty it of all the rubbish that we've been carrying put the backpack down with the pain and the heartache and the trauma and all the experiences that we've wrapped ourselves around and choked ourselves with, once we disentangle from that and start to smooth out the rough edges with this practice of virtue, that's purifying the heart purifying the mind, purifying our speech and action, and intending our heart towards skillfulness, harmlessness, kindness, goodness. And concentrating the mind, we begin to realize the source of an energy in us that is vast, that is very, very pure, refined, and it brings light into every dark corner of the heart. We can no longer carry that backpack. We no longer even need all that baggage. Not only do we consciously put it down, but in fact... It falls away. It dissolves little by little. We free ourselves. But I don't expect you to believe me. But then, from that action of repeatedly training the mind to go towards the light instead of Hiding out in the familiar, dark, cramped, heavy duty spaces. There's not much space to breathe in there. As you may have noticed, we begin to feel like we're like new people, like a new person. Something new comes out of it. We're reborn. I don't mean reborn Buddhists. We become born again. As Ajahn Kusalo said, barn again, when they were rebuilding the barn at the monastery. So let's, let's try it out, shall we?